Hello, this is Kalia in 2020. What you are about to hear is the remastered version of the episode that you clicked on. Why? Well, it turns out that when I started this podcast, I got some incorrect information regarding copyright law and fair use policy. After nearly two years of making content, this oversight was brought to my attention. There was mild panic, lots of guilt, and then a few fervent nights doing research. It seems we might exist in this gray, nebulous area of fair use for critique and commentary, and thus our use of a teeny tiny bit of the music from the soundtracks of the movies that we are critiquing and commenting on might be allowable. But then again, it might not. So a few things. One, I don't want to be a jerk, even accidentally. Two, I think it's important to acknowledge when you mess up. But three, and this is key, I think acknowledging your mess up isn't enough. You have to rectify the situation if possible. And guess what? It's totally possible to go back into these old episodes and clip out the maybe legal, maybe just slightly crappy bit of audio and replace it with a bit of music created just for me by the same composer and performer who made us our theme music, which is what I'm going to do. And since I can't help but tinker just a smidge, I might clean up a teeny tiny bit of audio noise while I'm in there. I mean, I've learned a lot over the last two years, and who knows, you might be stumbling upon this podcast feed years from now. So why should your present day ears be punished? Because way back in time, I hadn't yet found the noise reduction button. Anyway, without further ado, here's the podcast you came here for. Just slightly better. Thanks for listening. It's the Pages of Popcorns Podcast. Special guest. Special guest. gonna talk, so you better damn well listen. Hello and welcome to Pages and Popcorn Podcast, the podcast where normally Kalia and Jennifer talk about movies based on books. Today it is just Kalia and my special guest, Matt. Or Matthew, yes. And he is here today, and we are going to be talking about King Solomon's Mines, the book that was then later made into a movie, that was later made into a movie, that was later made into a different movie and a different movie. And um, despite what you might have seen on the internet, we're not going to be discussing the 1950s version of this movie, but that's okay. We have a good reason for that. But before we get into all of that kind of stuff, I'm going to tell you how you can connect with us on the internet. You are welcome to visit our website, and there you will find show notes. You will find a list of upcoming episodes that are mostly correct. And... Um, yeah, you'll be able to connect with us there. The other way that you can connect with us is by typing Pages and Popcorn Podcast into your search bar and finding us on Twitter and on Facebook. And you are, of course, more than welcome to email us at pagesandpopcornpodcast at gmail.com. Lastly, we want to thank our patrons for supporting us at $1 or $5 a month. Those people are awesome and they help us keep buying the books and paying for the rentals and all of that kind of fun, wonderful stuff. Um, if you do not have $1 or $5 a month, that's cool. You still can support us by telling a friend or linking or sharing our Facebook or rating and reviewing us on iTunes or telling a friend, cough, cough, tell two friends, tell three friends, tell all your friends. Um, 
Please. Tell your enemies. <laughs> well, yes. But only if they're they're nice enemies. Frenemies! Tell your frenemies! <laughs> Maybe you need to debate with somebody about this. Maybe you think that we are wrong in some of our assertions um, and assumptions about these books and movies. Uh, you are more than welcome to tell us how you feel, of course, by sending us an email or a voice memo, pagesandpopcornpodcast at gmail.com. But feel free to weigh in on Facebook or talk to your friends about us. So there you go. That's the intro. And now, on with the show. King Solomon's Mines was written in 1885. It's the popular novel by the English Victorian adventure writer Sir H. Ryder Haggard, which I kept thinking in my head because, I don't know, Rutger Howard wrote this? And then, like, getting very confused. So, nope, not Rutger Howard. It tells of the search of an unexplored region of Africa by a group of adventurers led by Alan Quartermain for the missing brother of one of the men in the party. It is the first English adventure novel set in Africa and is considered to be the genesis of the lost world literary genre. Okay, so that's the book. And then came time to pick the movie. The novel's been adapted into film multiple times. The first version premiered in 1937. The second and best-known version was 1950. That was the one we intended to watch because it is the best-known version. Then in 1979, a low-budget version was directed and and released. Yes, okay. And it combined both King Solomon's Minds as well as another Alan Quartermain novel called Alan Quartermain. Okay. Then in 1985, King Solomon's Minds was made, and it was a tongue-in-cheek parody of the story, um, followed by a sequel, Alan Quartermain and the Lost City of Gold. Um, around the same period, an Australian animated TV film came out. Okay. Um, in December 2006, the movie The Librarians Return to King Solomon's Minds was released. It's the second in the Librarians trilogy. Uh, I know that the first Librarians movie had Noah Wiley, um, heartthrob that he is, but I have not seen any of the other Librarians movies. And then in 2008, a direct-to-video adaptation, Alan Quartermine in the Temple of Skulls was released, but we're not watching any of those. Oh no. We are watching the 2004 TV miniseries, King Solomon's Minds, made by Hallmark. And this is the reason why. Right before we sat down to watch the 1950 movie, we watched the trailer. And it was horrible. And I actually made a voice memo right after we watched it. Uh, Normally we don't record at all in advance, but we broke the rule today. So here's the voice memo that we made right after watching the 1950 trailer. I'm taking a voice memo. I've never taken a voice memo, but I've also never watched the movie with with the person that I'm going to be recording. So it's been really hard, I'm just going to say, to not talk about this, because I read it and I had thoughts, and then you read it and you had thoughts, and it was hard to not talk about it. And now we're sitting down here to watch it. And we just watched the trailer. And if this episode wasn't slated to come out in, like, three days, I would not want to watch this movie. I'm just telling you now. Like, this looks like racist, colonialism, racist, 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 garbage, and... I, I honestly feel a little weird about spending money to rent this. For what it's worth, the people who made the movie and who brought the racism with them are all dead. They will not make any dime off of us doing this. Well, that that is some small comfort. But holy crap, man. Uh, like, we purposely didn't pick 
black books to pander to an audience, you know, um, in this current climate of all these protests and stuff. But it almost feels like a bad step to watch this right now in this current climate. I understand that. I mean, if you think of Afrofuturism, at least the book, King Solomon's Minds, is like the polar opposite. It, it was, um, I don't know, white colonial oldism rather than Afrofuturism? I don't know what to call it. I don't know. I'm not, I just, I mean, the book was fairly racist, but it was racist in this, like, I, I guess because you were reading it and you're like, okay, these Victorian people, they're not, uh, I was going to say, they're not cruel racist, but they're just like, they're tangentially, peripherally racist. Everything, you know, it's just like, okay, you can kind of see that as the terror nor like the product of their time, even though it's very uncomfortable. And I know you can't judge things in different times with the lens of today, but like reading it was bad enough, but I don't know, man. Watching this particular, are there other versions of this film that are maybe not so? Because we we can pick whichever version we want, really. There are other versions, yes. Do you think they might not be as racist? I don't know. The nineteen eighty five one might be less so. Let's watch the trailer for the nineteen eighty five one. So we watched the nineteen eighty five trailer, and then these were our thoughts. Okay. So now that we've watched the first movie for the 1980 whatever film, which yes, that definitely looks like they saw it, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and they're like, let's redo this with Sharon Stone. Pretty much, yeah. Um, in her short short. Uh, well, we saw the point where they had a group of cannibals dancing around a giant pot with vegetables that they dumped the hero into, so you know, that kind of tells you the sort of movie you're getting into. Um, also, apparently they said it during World War One, so that they could have Germans as the bad guys, just like Indiana Jones, even though the original book was set in the 1880s. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm honestly, like, very torn, because I, I mean, to be totally honest, I severely disliked reading this book. I found it really hard to finish. I know I skimmed parts of it because I don't, I didn't want to read more about war. For some reason, when you told me that it was, like, an adventure thing, all I knew was that it was an adventure thing, and somebody had said the word colonialism to me. That's like all I knew about it. Um, but, like, we're coming off of, or I'm coming off of, uh, Black Hawk Down and um, something else recently that was depressing. Oh, Born on the Fourth of July. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, I thought it would be a fun book. <laughs> this is not a fun book. It's Victorian. The language was Victorian. The racism was Victorian. Victorian. The the drama was Victorian, and I didn't I didn't like it honestly. And then now I I don't I don't know. Do you think our our patrons would just would just hate it if if we just didn't do this book and movie and moved up Ella Enchanted? Because honestly, I'm really enjoying that one. So after a little bit more discussion, we have one more voice memo. It's been almost 30 years since I've seen the film, and it was, I mean, it definitely had the racism you'd expect for an American film set in Africa um, that, was filmed, that was made in the 50s. So there's going to be stuff that we will find offensive, stuff that frankly back in 1950 they should have found offensive. Um, at the same time, 
I don't know that there's going to be much. My recollection is that it was people who had a sense of their own superiority pointing a camera some of the time at people who were different than them as opposed to a you know strong desire to show their superiority if you get what i mean yeah no and and you said that you don't remember it being quite as racist as the trailer would have you say yeah, the trailer really sensationalizes everything from the you know, amount of action in the movie, my recollection is it doesn't have much. In fact, after we watched it, I remember my friend saying, wow, not a whole lot happened there um, to some of the locations. It is actually filmed in Africa. The highlight of the movie um, and the big selling point has always been the wildlife um, filming because at the time that it was made, nature documentaries filmed in South America, Africa, and so on were very common, very popular. And so the, my recollection is that they did adopt some of that style in filming this. You know, they focused more on the animal, the native animals than the native people. That's my memory of it. I might be wrong, though. Right. 30 years is a long time. Exactly. And, you know, the, I think one of the things that I found with the book that I think is possibly going to be the same with the film is that there are things about the book that you... Like, as reading it, I could understand why this became kind of a classic foundational story for adventure novels. Um, it's well-paced. It's got a lot of exciting sequences, plus a lot of times where there's not excitement, but clearly people are in peril from the elements, things like that. It worked very well in that way. It was also written by somebody who had worked in colonial South Africa and who was a member of the um, British upper class. And I think he honestly felt like he was trying to do right by the African people, but he was a member of the British upper class who had worked in colonial Africa, and he didn't have the self-reflection that somebody like um, George Orwell would show. You know, when George Orwell wrote about colonialism, he really got into the nitty-gritty, whereas this guy didn't seem to have as much of a problem with it. I suspect that the film, which is made in 1950, at the time that a lot of European countries were beginning to move out of colonial um, uh, control of parts of Africa, Asia, and so on, is going to have a bit of a different tenor. But I will say that I... Uh, I do believe that we'll probably see stuff that we pick up on now and say, hey, that's pretty fucking racist. Um, that the people of 1950 might not, or I should say the white people of 1950 who made films may not have seen that way. And I'm honestly not sure what we're going to make of it when it's all done. Uh, yes, I suppose. All right. We will, we will start it. <laughs> But we did not start it. <laughs> no, no, we did not. The narrator says, they did not, in fact, start it. <laughs> Instead, we realized that in that, that thing that we have listed of all the different iterations, there was a 2004 Patrick Swayze version, which, okay, like I had said, 2004 Hallmark. And then I said 2004 Hallmark starring Patrick Swayze. And... Here's the thing. I've accepted that in some ways I'm a bit of a basic bitch. I like going to Starbucks. 
I like shopping at Target. I like the occasional throw pillow. Uh, I'm not all into like that eat, love, laugh, blah, 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 cursive writing on the walls. Not that basic. But I do like Chardonnay and sitting around with my friends. So whatever. Anyways, point is, I'm okay with accepting that I'm a contemporary person who likes contemporary things more than <clears throat> cough, cough, Victorian things. So also, I love Patrick Swayze. Who doesn't love Patrick Swayze? I he mean, is ha- the Swayzeiest. Have you seen Roadhouse? So, <laughs> I said, you know what? If we're gonna do this, let's do it the Swayze way, the Swayze Wazy. And so that is what we watched. We watched the Hallmark miniseries, which is, by the way, like almost four hours long. Three hours long, almost exactly. It felt like four hours. Whatever. We watched. <laughs> we watched the the very long, with weird pauses for commercials <laughs> breaks. Hallmark, two thousand and four. Patrick Swayze, King Solomon's Mines. So, that is what we did, and these are now our recaps. <laughs> First, the recap of the book. Alan Quatermain, an adventurer and white hunter based in Durban which is now South Africa, is approached by the aristocrat and very sexy Sir Henry Curtis and his Percy friend, Captain Good. They seek his help in finding Sir Henry's lost brother who was last seen traveling north into the unexplored interior on a quest for the fabled King Solomon's Mines. Quartermain just happens to have maybe seen this brother before his trip and, coincidentally enough, just happens to have a mysterious map purporting to lead to those mysterious mines, but he's never taken it seriously, just seriously enough to keep the map. He got the map from a guy who says it was left to him from his ancestor, José Silvestre, a 16th century Portuguese explorer who drew the map in his own blood and then died while looking for the mines, but somehow the map got home to his family, so there. Pin in that. Quartermain agrees to lead the expedition in return for a share of the treasure if they find it, or a stipend for his adult son if he's killed along the way. He has little hope that they will return alive, but reasons that he has already outlived most people in his profession, so dying in this manner at least ensures that his son will be provided for. They also take along some servants, of course, because you can't go anywhere without servants, and a mysterious native. Umbopa, who seems more regal, handsome, and well-spoken than other porters of his class, but he's also very anxious to join the party. So, despite the fact that Quartermain's not thrilled with how Umbopa comports himself, he's all regular-looking and doesn't cow and, like, fall all over himself. Whatever. Anyways. La la la, this regal servant of theirs. Traveling by ox cart, they reach the edge of the desert, but not before a hunt, in which a wounded elephant claims the life of one of their servants. Ah, so sad, too bad. They continue on foot across the desert, almost dying of thirst, before finding an oasis that was halfway across on the map. Then they reach a mountain range, which is called Solomonberg. They climb a peak, which is one of Sheba's breasts, and enter a cave, where they found the frozen corpse of Jose Silvestre. That night, The second servant dies from the cold, and they leave his body next to Silvestre in order to give him a companion. They cross the mountains into a raised valley, which is lush and green, which is known as Coquanaland. The inhabitants have a well-organized army and society and speak an ancient dialect of Isuzulu. Coquanaland's capital is Lu, the destination of a magnificent road from ancient times. The city is dominated by a central royal kraal. They soon meet a party of Coquana warriors who are about to kill them when Captain Good, who's half-shaved and pantsless, nervously fidgets with his false teeth, making the Kukwanas recoil in fear. Thereafter, to protect themselves, our Englishmen style themselves as white men from the stars, sorcerer gods, 
and they are required to give regular proof of their divinity, considerably straining both their nerves and their ingenuity, like shooting things with their magic noisemakers, aka guns. They are then brought before King Twala, who rules over his people with ruthless violence. He came to power years before, when he murdered his brother, the previous king, and drove his brother's wife and infant son, Ignosi, out into the desert to die. Twala's rule is unchallenged. An evil, impossibly ancient hag witch named Gagool is his chief advisor. She roots out any potential opposition by ordering regular witch hunts and murdering without trial all those identified as traitors. When she singles out Umbopa for this fate, it takes all of Quartermain's skill to save Umbopa's life. Gagool, it appears, has already sensed what Mpupa soon after reveals. He is actually Ignosi, the rightful king of the Kukwanas. He proves this because he has a snake tattoo on his private parts. It's only given to royal baby boys. Cool, 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 cool. A rebellion breaks out. The Englishmen gain support by Ignosi by taking advantage of their super convenient breakthrough knowledge, because they have an almanac with them, it's been traveling with them for some reason, there's coming to be an eclipse. They claim that they will black out the moon, or the sun, depending on which version you read, as proof of Ignosi's royal awesomeness. The Englishmen join Ignosi's army and a furious battle ensues, although outnumbered the rebels overthrow Twala and Sir Henry eventually lops off his head in a duel, because if you're a royal and you're gonna die, they let you die fighting, so then you get to like maybe kill other people on your way down, whatever. The beautiful Sir Henry chops off Twala's head. Good is injured and almost dies, but a native woman, the beautiful Kukwana named Flauta? Falata. Okay, Good is injured and almost dies, but a native woman, the beautiful Flauta, tends to him, and they fall in love. This is super scandalous. The Englishmen have captured Gagool, who reluctantly leads them to King Solomon's mines. She shows them a treasure room inside a mountain carved deep within the living rock and full of gold, diamonds, and ivory. She then treacherously sneaks out while they're admiring the hoard and triggers a secret mechanism that closes the mine's vast stone door. However, there's a brief scuffle with Falata, and that causes her, Gagool, to be crushed under the stone door, and, but unfortunately she fatally stabbed her, Falata before she died. So, um, their scat store of food and water is rapidly dwindling, the trapped men prepare to die also, but after a few despairing days sealed in the dark chamber, they eventually find an escape route, and they bring with them a few pocketfuls of diamonds from the immense trove, and that's going to be enough to make them rich. They bid farewell to a sorrowful Ignosi and return to the desert, assuring him that they value his friendship, but must return to be with their own people. Ignosi, in return, promises them that they will be venerated and honored among his people forever. They decide to take a different, faster, and less dangerous route home. And, along the way, they find Sir Henry's brother, stranded in an oasis by a broken leg, unable to go forward or back. So, they all return to Durban and eventually to England. They're all wealthy. They all live comfortable lives. The end. Okay, so, yes, and then they made the movie, and then they made the movie, and then they made the movie again and again and again, multiple times, and eventually, eventually, in 2004, they made this version, Hallmark's version of King Solomon's Mines. In Africa, wealthy businessman Mr. Bitter is on safari with his guides, Alan Quartermain and Bruce McNabb. He wishes to kill a family of elephants, but Quartermain insists otherwise. Quartermain is a conservationist. McNabb betrays and subdues Quartermain, and the others open fire. Later, the wounded mother elephant destroys the camp and kills Bitter, dying shortly after, just as Quartermain prepares to euthanize her. He whispers, sorry, girl. Again, he's a conservationist and gentle in spirit. Okay, Patrick Swayze is a very rugged cowboy. 
Samuel Maitland, a wealthy British explorer, is writing a letter to his daughter Elizabeth enclosing a map to the fabled mines of King Solomon. He was hired by the Russian Tsar to find the mines, but now here he is in Africa, and local tribes are on his tail as well. The yes, the map is only safe with her somehow. Shortly after sending this letter on the map, he is captured by the native Kukwani tribesmen. Their king, Twala, seeks more power and believes that he can obtain it by finding the Stone of the Ancestors, an artifact that is hidden in King Solomon's mines. Convenient. Quartermain returns to London, wishing to spend time with his youngest son, Harry. However, Harry's grandparents have filed for custody, declaring that Quartermain is an unfit parent, because apparently when his wife died on safari, killed by a mother lion, Alan sent the boy to live with his grandparents. But that was a long time ago. Now he wants to live in London and raise his son. His grandparents are like, nope. Quartermain's lawyer tells him that without a substantial amount of money, he cannot win the case. So he goes to the bar. As you do. There, Elizabeth Maitland and Captain Good, her uncle and bodyguard, find him and ask for his help. He refuses. They leave him, but first they drop off their card. Then he reads the card. He realizes who her father is. He runs after them. Quartermain finds Elizabeth being attacked by a Russian man, Sergei. He fends him off. The pair return to Elizabeth's hotel room to find it ransacked. Only then, Elizabeth reveals that she must travel to Africa to trade this map for her father's life. Quartermain agrees. Arriving in Africa, Quartermain enlists the help of his acquaintances, Vent Vogel and Kiva. And after a brief macho man love fight, because, uh, you know, real men drink and fight and hit each other, that's how they show their love, his close friend, the beautiful Sarah Henry Curtis. Meanwhile, three Russian men, tasked with retrieving the map, is it Colonel Ivan, Petre, and Sergei, enlist McNabb as their guide, telling him they may have to kill Quartermain. Eh, he is not bothered by this. Quartermain and Elizabeth come to respect one another as the journey progresses, especially after he saves her from a leper that invades her tent one morning and is like licking her hand. He also gives her some sort of lotion for her chapped thighs. Not a euphemism. Also, the native guides delight in pranking the overly prissy Captain Good, and it's pretty fun to watch. Also, also, Sir Henry tells Elizabeth about how Alan's wife died, and oh yeah, she loves Africa. It's even beautiful, even though it's dangerous. When the group reaches the drop-off location, however, they find their contact has been killed and an imposter is in his place. They're ambushed by the Russians, and Quartermain must make a dangerous ride through a crossfire to save Elizabeth. McNabb has a shot on Quartermain, but does not take it, resulting in Petra being shot in the abdomen. After seeking the counsel of a witch doctor, the group realize they must cross the Great Sahara Desert. Quartermain talks to an African man who's been seen following them throughout the whole journey, and he introduces himself as Mbappa, saying he can be of help. He's crossed the Great Desert before. They agree to have him travel with their group. After McNabb fails to file for a ruse involving multiple tracks, the Russians gain ground. But Alan knows they're being followed, and he tricks the Russian into attacking an empty camp. It's an ambush! The Russians fall behind again. As they begin to catch up in the desert, Quartermain's group finds a rock formation that looks like a cobra, which leads them to a tomb containing a key to the mines, because apparently you got to have a key, you have a map, and a key, then, okay, whatever, lots of side quests. However, while Quartermain and the others are retrieving the key, the Russians arrive, incapacitate Captain Good, and kidnap Miss Maitland. All of this is intercut with um, Lizzie's dad getting threatened by Twala over and over and over again, and the witch doctor Gagul seeming to be sort of friendly towards him. That's the end of part one. Part two! Both groups must pass through the desert, making for an oasis. Petre, the Russian guy, succumbs to his injuries and dies. Both parties nearly die of thirst. Quartermain's party reach the oasis first, and they ambush the Russians, leading to a tent standoff. Elizabeth creates a distraction and escapes, leading to an exchange of fire in which Ivan is injured, and the Russians seize the map and the key. After Umbopo leads them through the valleys on the other side of the desert, and they gain ground on the Russians, the group sets up a 
another ambush to retrieve the map. The trap initially succeeds, and McNabb is forced at gunpoint to drop the bag containing the map and the key as he and the Russians are driven off by gunfire. Kiva makes a run for the bag, but is shot by both Sergei and Ivan. Quartermain rescues the badly wounded Kiva, while Henry and Vent Vogel shoot Sergei. As the firefight continues, Elizabeth goes to retrieve the map. McNabb prepares to kill her, but Quartermain disarms him and shoots him in the shoulder and the hand. Then he also shoots Ivan, but who doesn't die? The only one who dies is Kiva. They all mourn him. Quartermain's group continues towards the Kukwani village, followed by Ivan and McNabb, who have survived their injuries. Everyone gets ambushed by native warriors. Hey, look, a successful ambush, finally. Umbapu reveals his true name to be Ignosi. He is the rightful king. He proves this by showing off his stomach scars. He also tells the warrior that Alan's group are his friends, and the other two white dudes are his slaves. The warriors escort the group to their village, where Ignosi challenges Twala to Nomols... Okay. Nomols... No molos. No molos. It is basically the word Solomon backwards. And now that I know that, I cannot not see it. And so. Oh, wow. I had yes. to that. <laughs> okay. No molos, which is a fight to the death for the throne. Elizabeth is reunited with her father, who has survived his captivity, and it is revealed that Ignosi and Twala do not fight each other in no molos personally, but rather select a representative. Ignosi has chosen Quartermain. On the morning of the big fight, McNabb and Ivan escape their bounds and search for the key as the Nomolos begins. Initially, it is evenly matched, but Twello's warrior gains the upper hand and almost kills Quartermain. Quartermain manages to turn the fight around and prepares to make the killing blow, but instead he slams the axe into the ground near the warrior's head as a show of mercy. Ignosi congratulates him on winning, but Twello attempts to kill him by throwing a spear! Sir Henry sees the danger and intervenes, saving Quartermain by taking the spear himself. Quartermain tries to help, but Henry dies, saying, take care of that lass. Okay. As final lines go, that one sucked. Enraged, Quartermain prepares to kill Twala, but Ignosi intervenes. To their surprise, all the rest of the warriors close in and murder Twala. Because, I guess, he was shitty. Well, we knew that. Ivan and McNabb have found the key. They are discovered by Gagul. She kills Ivan with her magic, entrancing him and forcing him to asphyxiate. But she lets McNabb go, telling him he may find what he seeks, but he will never fully possess it. Gagul approaches Ignosi and is allowed to remain the witch doctor of the tribe because Samuel, uh, the professor, Elizabeth's dad, who now has the name Samuel, which I don't know if I said before, whatever, he vouches for her. Also, like, she's pretty fucking powerful, so sure, let her sit wherever she wants to, right? Right. She presents Ignacy with the key to the mines, which he gives to Quartermain. He explains that while there is interest in the mines and the magical rock, his people will never be safe, and he asks Quartermain and Elizabeth to destroy the stone of the ancestors. So, the pair, Elizabeth and Quartermain, travel to the mines. Apparently Samuel, her father, the professor, who has spent his entire life looking for those mines, is really cool with just being back with Captain Good. I don't know, maybe they're hanging out with I don't know what they're doing. Anyways, it's been 10 minutes, so it's time for another ambush. McNabb gets the drop on them and then engages Quartermain in a very um, manly fight. He is killed after Quartermain throws him down a flight of stairs onto one of the many spring-loaded spears that protrude from the floor when triggered. Quartermain and Elizabeth find the stone, but when they touch it, the cavern seals them in. Awaiting death, Quartermain proposes to Elizabeth, to which she says yes. Suddenly, they remember. There's a shaft of sunlight lancing into the mine. That indicates a way out. They take a ring off a statue, they trigger a start of an avalanche, they begin to climb out of the mine, they throw the stone back in behind them, they barely escape, the entire mine collapses. Months later, Quartermain and Elizabeth are married. They live in a cottage on the savannah with Alan's son Harry living with them. The movie ends with little Harry trying to rope their black servant, but getting roped himself. And if that isn't some sort of fucked up symbolism, I'm not sure what is. The end.
You know, I, I will say that last sequence where he's practicing roping and he's trying to rope the African native servant and the African native servant turns it around and ropes the kid. It's like, I'm just left thinking, are they trying to say something? And if so, what the hell are they trying to say? What's going on? Africa will kill you, white person, unless you <laughs> become... I don't know, man. Ugh, there's so... There's a lot, okay? There's a lot. Yeah. It, you know, it's interesting going through um, all of this that there is... Um, you know, we selected the 2004 one because... I refuse to watch the 1950 version. Right. And... A lot of the inherent racism of the novel and what I suspect we would have found in the 1950 version was gone. But it wasn't gone completely. There's still... Because I don't think you can tell the story without some degree of racism. Well, I think there's one way you could, but we'll get to that later. Yeah, I mean, okay. And because it's a period piece, like, it would be wrong if the people in that period didn't have some racist attitudes because that wouldn't correctly reflect that piece so like captain good when they arrive in africa is looking around he's like is this how these people live like he is like super snotty about it right he but he's also like the buffoon character so like that's kind of having our cake and eating it too our hero alan quartermain is like buddies with the native people in fact there's this whole scene that i didn't say in the recap where they're like you can't leave africa alan you are africa africa wouldn't be the same without you don't retire and go to england you have to stay here with us we love you and like they're his friends and like that's cool. Like, he's really sad when Kiva dies. We're all sad when Kiva died. Kiva deserved better. Kiva Captain. was actually a pretty cool character. Kiva was freaking awesome. And Kiva, like, mocked Captain Good and, like, played pranks on him. And it was awesome, right? So, like, but there's definitely going to be those racist things that are going to be there. Yeah. But they also, like, I think Hallmark was like, yeah, but our 2004 audience isn't going to sit still for, like, overt racism. We can just have subtle racism <laughs> because it's 2004. And that's still cool. Um, it's 2020 when we're making this podcast. And I feel like this movie, I don't even know if they would make this movie now. But if they did, I feel like it would be very different. Like, the racist people would be the, like, the, the super bad guys or something, you know? Like, we would... It would be more than this is, even though this definitely had Alan not being as bad as everybody else. Yeah, I think, though, we may be getting the cart before the horse a bit. Do you want to talk about the novel? Yeah, and... yeah I guess. Sure. Okay. So, the novel. The novel. Okay, so... I took notes. Usually, we say how we came to this. I will tell you, the way I came to this was because... You and I were going to record together. You wanted to record and I wanted you to record with me. And we were talking about stuff. And you were like, oh, we could do Maltese Falcon. And I was like, oh, I feel like that's been done a bunch. And you were like, oh, okay, we could do King Solomon's Mines. And I said, I have never heard of this. I don't, I know who King Solomon is. I was raised Christian in a Lutheran private school, but I don't know anything about his mines. And you were like, oh yeah, it's an Alan Quartermain. And I was like, Oh yeah, that guy who was in that movie, I'm pretty sure there was like a movie I saw where a whole bunch of magical superheroes like showed up to like fight evil and one of them was Sean Connery and that was Alan Quartermain? Yep, that was uh, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Right, so cool, cool, cool. So Alan Quartermain is like somewhere uh, like finding mines. Sweet. And then I don't even remember who I said it to. I said something and they said the word, oh, colonialism. 
And then I was like, oh, I wonder if this is a Victorian novel. <laughs> Spoiler alert. It, it is. is. <laughs> so that is how I came to this book. Wide-eyed and innocent. <laughs> how did you come to this book, Matthew? <laughs> so um, Raiders of the Lost Ark is my favorite film. And when I was a teenager and I was you know, rewatching it for the first time and thinking, this is amazing. This is a great adventure film. Uh, I got curious about the source material for it. So I started reading a lot of old pulp magazines and listening to old radio shows and watching old serials. In the course of doing that, I got directed towards King Solomon's Minds. People kept saying, if you want to understand the history of this genre, this is really where that starts, is this book, King Solomon's Minds. So I read it. I was probably 14 or 15 at the time. Um, and I definitely reading it, it's like, I, I picked up on the fact that there was a whole lot of racism, but I also compartmentalized it because, you know, it's like, well, it was written in the 19th century and I understand that it was part of this colonial, um, literature. And so I was able to put that aside and focus on the adventure story aspects, which is what stands out in my memory. Um, and then I watched the 1950 film because people kept saying, oh, well, you know, if you've read the book, you should watch the 1950 film. And I did that. And I had a similar reaction to that. Uh, so that's how I came to it. I, I will say that coming at it in 2020 with 30 years of life experience and a much stronger grounding in both history and anthropology and uh, I hope a lot more empathy for people in general, um, I had a very different impression rereading it as a middle-aged adult than I did as a teenage boy. <laughs> Which, I mean, and I know we're going to talk about a lot of stuff, but one thing I want to say is that this book was written for teenage boys. Like, Victorian teenage boys. English. English teenage boys. But it's literally, like, dedicated to teenage boys. Yeah. Like, the whole point of this. And so I think that that's really interesting that you were a teenage boy who read it, um, who liked adventure stuff, mm -hmm. obviously. Like, you were, like maybe 150 years later in life, you know, then, but also like closer to a hundred years later, but yeah. Yeah. Fair. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. I'm not that old. <laughs> it's the book's not that old. I think <laughs> the my, book's not that old, I yes. don't math. Okay. <laughs> Kalia doesn't math. Kalia hates love. Kalia doesn't math. Um, the sad thing here, folks, is that contrary to her protestations, she's actually pretty good at math most of the time. And hecka good at romance. No, sorry, just kidding. Here, can you turn that fan on for me? Absolutely. It's getting hot in here. Okay, just So just for the record, because people may be amused, you know, Kalia hates love. I just need to say I'm her husband. <laughs> so this is just terribly entertaining to me. Yes. Yes, I hate, but I love you. <laughs> La la la. Yeah, actually, I'm sorry. This is a weird tangent, but it because that's a joke now on this podcast is that I hate love because I can't stand all this romantic sappy crap. And somebody actually wrote in and was like, "Are you single?" <laughs> and I was like, "No, <laughs> I'm very happily matched." <laughs> but <clears throat> la la la. <laughs> we don't need to talk about how I always forget our anniversary, and you don't because you're better than me. So okay, so literary significance <laughs> and criticism. <laughs> Of this book. So, okay. First of all, the book. Haggard, not not Rutger Howard, but Haggard, wrote the novel as a result of a five-shilling wager with his brother that said he could not write a, a novel half as good as Stevenson's Treasure Island. I feel like, at some point, you and I should 
do Treasure Island, but only if that we can watch fun. the Muppet version of the movie. Uh, I, I will agree to do that if we watch... I'll watch the Muppet version. We need to watch one of the live-action versions, too. Fair, if we fair. do both of those, I'll do that with okay. you. Okay, because my father read Treasure Island to me as a child, and I actually liked it well, Most a lot. people who read it did. Yeah. I've never read it. Well then, okay, here we go. Yes, I liked it a lot, and then I read it actually for book club. We were reading, we went through a classics period, and um, I don't think I've ever seen any of the other movies besides the Muppet version. But I mean, who doesn't fucking love Muppets? So, yeah, okay, coming to your podcast ears in about a year. <laughs> we will do that. Anyways, so I, I enjoyed that way better. So I think he lost the bet. Is all I'm saying. Retroactively, I think your brother can have his money. <laughs> um, so there we go. Do, 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 do. It was published. It became the year's bestseller. Um, it created a whole new genre, the lost world genre. Of course, it inspires Burroughs with Land the Time Forgot, Doyle's The Lost World, Kipling's The Man Who Would Be King, Lovecraft's at the Mountains of Madness, uh, you know, Tarzan, like all of that stuff, right? Like it. So even though it wasn't a book that I particularly enjoyed, I, I mean, just putting way jumping to the end here. Um, I can see that of its cultural and social, you know, relevance and importance for sure. So it is probably one of those books that everybody should read at some point. Although I'm going to say like, you should probably read it in school where you have to, and then you write an essay and then you can like move on with your life. But maybe also I'm jumping. Um, you probably don't feel the same way because it's, you liked it, right? Well, so my feelings about it are very complicated. When I read it as a teenager, you know, I understood that there was a British colonial presence in Africa, and I understood that the British colonial presence pretty much everywhere was not good for the natives. So um, that was about the extent of my understanding. Since then, I have studied history, I've studied anthropology, um, I professionally, I'm an archaeologist, and... I now know, for example, that um, what was going on there at the time was conflict between the British and a Dutch-descended population called the Boers over who controlled South Africa. And there's a lot of comments throughout the book uh, regarding that that just went over my head. I didn't even realize that's what they were at the time, but I now understand. Um, there's things such as you know, one of the servants um, was named Vint Vogel, another one who shows up is named Jim. A lot of them are given British English names, which, um, you know, now I kind of see as, well, you know, you're not just colonizing the country, you're colonizing people's names. But then I thought, well, Vint Vogel, that's, that's got to be an African name. No, that's a Dutch name. It sounds Dutch. Kiva <laughs> it, it, sounds African. Kiva sounds African. Uh, but yeah, Vint Vogel sounds Dutch. The uh, term crawl, which was what they were referring to the homesteads as, well, that's a cognate with corral. Um, and it comes in through Portuguese. So there's a lot of little linguistic things where I realized, you know, everything was getting Europeanized on this reading in a way I didn't. You know, I just took for granted that if it wasn't an English term, it was Native African. No, it, it, it frequently wasn't. Sometimes it was, but frequently it wasn't. Um, the other, so that was a big thing that hit me was that there was a lot more for lack of a better way of putting it, kind of racist colonial stuff that went over my head because I had no knowledge of Dutch or German when I read it the first time. I had no knowledge of the conflict between the British and the Boers. 
even the idea that you've got this Jewish presence uh, in the form of King Solomon that forms these mines, and then later on they imply that Phoenicians and Egyptians had built them and so on. You know, at the time I just thought, well, that's kind of a neat little flight of fancy. Now, um, you know, 30 years later, I know that really up until the late 19th century, and in some cases, people still push this. I mean, the whole ancient aliens bullshit really is about this. There's this notion that the natives of Africa, of North America, of you know some of the uh, some parts of Asia, were not advanced enough to have built monuments and cities and so on that clearly from archaeological evidence we know that they built. Um, so there's this racist notion that white people had to have come in and people argue about the ethnicity of Egyptians. I'll just simply say that the Egyptians as well as the Romans and most people in the ancient world did not think of ethnicity quite the same way we do so that's another topic but uh, certainly to the Europeans uh, uh, colonial powers they did tend to view um, the ancient Egyptians and Phoenicians as at the very least being honorary white and um, the worst club ever yeah really it is <laughs> for for the record formally the Jap the Imperial Japanese Army during World War II when they were just laying waste to China and making an alliance with the Nazi uh, regime were formally designated as honorary white so this is not a club you want to be a member of anyway like the whole idea of well there's these mines and this ancient road and all of these amazing things well they had to have been built by white people that's a slightly fictionalized version of something that was actually going on at the time where the city of great zimbabwe which was this ancient abandoned city an architectural marvel of the ancient world um, Europeans would not accept that black Africans had built it, even though they had. Um, and so they came up with all sorts of explanations for why it was built by the lost tribes of Israel or Phoenicians or Egyptian waters. Basically, everybody that um, is credited with building stuff in King Solomon's mines was credited with building uh, Great Zimbabwe. So there's a lot of background that I just simply didn't have and didn't pick up on reading it that I did this time and I just found myself constantly thinking, well, that's fucking racist. And it really soured a lot of elements of the book because I realized that they weren't these innocent things that I kind of felt they were, but they were really pretty horrible. So, and I do want to say, like, the book is racist for, you know, obviously what we've been saying, but, but... Um, it, it, it is interesting that Haggard portrays some African characters as the barbarians, like Twala and Gagul, but their evilness, like, has more to do with the fact that they're the, the villains of the piece, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so, it, it's not as much about the fact that they're Africans. Thankfully, we have a few African people who are not villains, like the, the, the servants, um, who aren't villains, but they're all servants, and, you know, Ignosi, but here's the thing, like, it's not enough if they just had that. If you're like, there's a bunch of people and some of them are assholes and some of them are not assholes. And yes, like a bunch of them are black. That's fine. What makes it fucking racist? And when he's like, oh, you, my African friend, are not like those other Africans. You are noble and smart or you are good. You're the good version of. And so that's what makes it racist. Right. And even there, like uh, Ignosi, 
is actually a genuinely interesting character. I think actually one way you could retell the story and have it not be racist is you tell it entirely from Mignosi's point of view. He's wandering, trying to find his way back home, and he comes across these three yokels from England and says, yeah, okay, I'm using those guys. Seriously. Uh, but, um, you know, there's some subtle things in the book that, again, I didn't pick up on as a teenager, but I did this time. Uh, Ignosi is definitely black African, but his skin's slightly lighter in color, yes. whereas Twala's very dark-skinned. Yeah. Uh, Gagul, the evil sorceress, and in anthropology, the term witch doctor doesn't get used because it's basically a racist caricature. Witch gets used sometimes, sorcerer or sorceress gets used, because what you're really talking about is their alleged magical powers, and those are more direct translations. Um, so Gagul, the sorceress... Um, is compared to a monkey when she first shows up. And then the pronoun it is used. Yeah. Freaking now, Hagger doesn't even allow her. After Quartermain knows that she is a she, he still refers to her as it. And some of that stuff, I'm not sure how much of that... Humanizing. Yeah, I'm not sure how much of that was supposed was you know racist or specifically misogynist, though it easily reads as both. And how much of it was she's... You know, the sorceress. She's basically a type of monster. Uh, either a way, monster. I, yeah, yeah. It, it really it it's it doesn't sit well. It doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing that I really picked up on uh, reading it this time around was I, I think in my memory the Kukwanas were the descendants of the people who had built the mines and built the road and all of that. I'd forgotten that in the novel, that's not the case. They came in after the, you know, honorary white people left and inhabited the place centuries later. Right. So, like, there's this really well done road. And he's like, wow, you guys made this road? And they're like, oh, no, 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 no. We don't know how to do <laughs> we that. We don't know how to make roads. Some some former people, civilization came and then they, then they all left. And then we're here now. Right? It wasn't even that they drove them off, right? Wasn't it that they all Oh, like, yeah, they, they, they left. They, they left, yeah. We didn't conquer them, <laughs> and we didn't do this stuff. We just stumbled upon and were, like, nicely benefacted by. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. those are the things that really had soured for me because of my life experience. There, there were elements of this book that I appreciated more because of life experience, Um but they were all based around like the descriptions of the physical adventure. And the reason is, um, you know, I've done all my field work in California. I've not ever been to Africa. I will say some of the cinematography in the movie we watched makes me want to kind of visit because damn, that's beautiful. Um, but you know, they're talking about being in this really humid environment and having to hike through carrying a lot of equipment. I've done that. When I read it as a teenager, I had to imagine that. Now I've done it. And so it really had a much more visceral thing. Going through the desert and having to worry that somebody's going to get heat stroke. By the way, public service announcement, people confuse heat stroke and heat exhaustion. Heat exhaustion is very bad. You should get medical attention. Heat stroke will kill you. So, difference. Anyway, but you know they were talking about people having uh, heat exhaustion and other heat-related illnesses while worrying about running low on water. I've worked in both desert environments and sub-desert environments um, where 
I've had to physically carry people out because they didn't carry enough water with them and it was too hot. So a lot of things that happen in the novel that have to do with the perils they faced. Uh, similarly, when they encounter the Kukwana warriors and you know they're kind of getting sized up by them, it's not a direct comparison, but I've done work, for example, out in ranch lands and so on and had ranchers show up with their rifles and want to steer me down. Um, so I've got experiences that are in some ways comparable to what the characters in the novel are going through. So I didn't really have to imagine it. I had more of a visceral reaction. And as an adventure story, it really worked for me because it did hit close to things I've actually gone through. So it was kind of weird. <laughs> and I'm like, oh God, this is awful. This is bad. This is why I don't adventure. This is why I want to stay inside. <laughs> Kalia does not go out in the field with me. <laughs> Kalia hates nature. <laughs> More than she hates love. True. So, yeah, I, I was very split on the book because it was a very effective adventure story, I felt. Um, and it was more effective as an adventure story for me now. And I thought it was, I thought the pacing was pretty good. I thought that the a lot of the sequences were genuinely exciting or genuinely harrowing. Um, but at the same time, it's in this just dramatic, racist mess of colonialism. And again, I, there's points where, like at the end, Ignosi gives a speech about, you know, we'll fight white men off if they come because we don't want their missionaries bringing their corrupting religion. We don't want the traders bringing their alcohol and harming us. You know, Ryder Haggard did seem to have some idea that white people being in Africa was not really doing the Africans any good, but he never seemed to have the level of self-awareness about colonialism that, you know, George Orwell did. Well, right. And even then he says all that, but he's also like saying, you guys can stay because you're like the good white people. Yeah. <laughs> You've proved yourself to me. So you guys can stay. And they're like, oh no, we can't stay. We have to be with our own kind. You had to come back to be with your own kind. We have to go be with our own kind. And that kind of goes into like one of the characters, Good, has this romance with a Kukwani woman. And for the record, in the novel, everybody talks about this Kukwani woman as being beautiful, extremely intelligent, um, you know, just basically... And noble. Noble, having all these wonderful qualities. Except that, you know, Quartermain's a little relieved when she dies because, oh my God, could you imagine if Good tried to take her back to England? Like that, no, no, no. Oh my God, so bad. Like it's bad enough that he's like with her here, but I can kind of get it because she nursed him back to health and, you know, men are men and horniness is horniness and I have got beautiful Sir Henry to look at, but poor Good doesn't have <laughs> anybody else to look at. So, you know, okay, I get it. I get your I get your little jungle fever here, but like now she couldn't go back with us. So it's really convenient that she dies. Okay, this whole idea of you have to stay in your area, we have to stay in our, we have to stay with our own kind is is pretty fucked up. Well, and also worked out in some more subtle ways, too. The um, Vint Vogel, uh, who's one of the servants, the one who dies at the top of the mountain, he died. They're all cold. They're all exposed to the cold. They're all having a hard time. But Vint Vogel has the hardest because, you see, he was from an area He's that like was warm. And so, of course, he can't adapt to the cold, despite the fact that humans <laughs> do this all the fucking time. He's even called a hotsman. He's a hotsman. A hot and tot, which, hot, yeah. yeah, 
Hottentot referred to a specific uh, ethno-linguistic group in Africa, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, so he's gonna die. Yeah, and so you just get these things where, well, so and so was not adapted to this environment. So you can tell that you know Darwin's uh, Origin of the Species had been published twenty years earlier, and um, if you think people don't understand it now, they were really grappling with it then. <laughs> One thing that really was kind of interesting to me is in reading some essays that criticized the book, um, a lot of them talked about how at the time it was published, it was considered very progressive because, you know, he did have Ignosi as an African hero. Falada, regardless of her death, is portrayed as being this really positive person. I mean, there's a lot of misogyny based in there. It's a Victorian novel. That's what you get. And not a petticoat to be seen, he oh, literally says. So I, I actually want to get to that. Okay. There's, there's layers so She of, can be there. She's a woman, but she's not, a, not an English woman. No petticoats. <laughs> there's layers of context, to cultural context to this book that I don't think the author was quite aware of. <laughs> Early in the book, there's a point where Alan Quatermain starts the book. It says a letter to his son telling him about his adventures. In the letter, you know, he first off admonishes his son to watch his language when talking about Native Africans. And I think this is another reason why I was able to give some things a pass as a teenager is that, um, you know, Quatermain, it, that... It makes a big deal about not using the N-word. Yeah. That's a big deal to him. It's a big deal. And he makes a point of saying, you know... There's a lot of people who will tell you that the British people are good and the Africans are degenerate, but look at the actual qualities of character and you're going to find a lot of degenerate British people and a lot of really high-quality African people. It, and then through the rest of the novel, he doesn't well, quite stick to that. But he also says, like, the highest like, compliment he can even give an African person is that, oh, he's a true gentleman. <laughs> yeah, which that, I think, is more it's a bit a of British, British Victorian classes. But yes, okay, yeah. so anyways, so yes, his letter to his son. But there's a sequence in the beginning, and I just think this is... So you've got this context of colonialism, which I don't think um, I don't think Hagrid had quite gra really gra grappled with very well. But there's another thing, which is that the way that we use language changes, and it made some things in the book unintentionally funny to a modern reader. One that sticks out is in that letter segment at the beginning, um, he, Alan Quatermain says, This is a very strange story. You might be wondering just how queer a story about, you know, four men with not a woman to be seen is. And I just kept thinking, yeah, the word queer meant something very different in 1885. It really did. Plus, I mean... How much spot time does he spend fawning over Sir Henry's Sir, the, beauty? The beautiful Sir Henry and his golden locks and his perfect body and all of this stuff and how well he fits into his armor and well how he fits into his everything and the only other body that gets this much attention is ignosi who you know like he's and it's because he like takes off his thing and he's all naked and he's got the snake tattoo and, and then he comes in like regal as a king and um quartermain's like damn that's a really fine specimen of a body there right it, throughout, oh throughout the book they do compare ignosi and sir henry constantly oh yeah they're like two sides of the same beautiful sexy coin yeah, one's very pale one's fairly dark skinned ebony and ivory <laughs> now I, i'll say i don't think that there was I, I don't think haggard intended to insert homoerotic tension but intended or not it's there okay and then what makes that funny too is that in all the versions of this that they have made, movie-wise, 
They keep taking Sir Henry, except the version we watched, but we'll get to that in a second. They take Sir Henry out, the beautiful Sir Henry, and replace him with... A woman. A woman! Sharon Stone, or whoever, is now like... Deborah Kerr in the Deborah Kerr is the, is the Sir Henry, because we have to have that beautiful person. And even in the, in the 2004 film that we watched, Sir Henry shows up, but he's no longer this regal... British uh, aristocrat. He's now literally a drunken Scotsman who starts bar fights in Cape Town. <laughs> yes, because he's like that kind of manly. The kind of manly who like, you know, will punch you to show you that he loves you and fights with you and is a hard drinking, but also like protect the lady. His final words are about the woman and all, and, 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 I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of homoeroticism in the, in the 2004 movie. Yeah, again, I think it was For unintentional, sure. but it's oh, there. I don't know. <laughs> I feel like there's enough gay men who love Patrick Swayze that they knew... I mean... Well, I'll, I'll say that the McNabb, who's a character completely created for the 2004 version, uh-huh. um, he definitely comes across as somebody who wants to be you're not sure if he wants to be alan quartermain or be with alan quartermain oh yeah and that is so queer it is it is super queer it, like, it really is it's i mean okay and it's unfortunate that he's the queer coded character who's also like the bad guy who can't quite bring himself to be all bad because like, he's obviously super horny for alan like he wants him and the fact that alan like they at the end they they I mean, I know we're just jumping right in here, but at the end of the movie, you've got Alan and, and McNabb now, right? And they're like, they've got their guns at each other and like, whatever, and they're going to fight. And then Alan's like, oh no, this isn't what you want, is it? And he puts down his gun and then he starts taking off his stuff. Like he takes he, off his... He doesn't take off his clothes, no, but, but it, the way it's filmed, it really comes across that he way. He takes <laughs> off his weapons, he takes off his little... Whatever that armored Which, thing is with the bullets. The bandolier. For a hunter to drop your weapons is to be naked. Seriously. Okay. <laughs> so he's taking all this stuff off, like maintaining eye contact. And he's like, this is what you want, isn't it? And then they just fight each other with their fists. Oh, which... God. And you know what just occurred to me? What? He get, he, McNabb dies by being thrown down onto a spear. He gets impaled by Quatermain. Yes. Yes, he does. Holy shit. <laughs> I was getting there and you guess. <laughs> that That is what happens. And we already know that like punching people is how men show their love because we saw that in the first part with freaking the beautiful Sir Henry. That's right. So, okay. I'm sorry. Like they knew. Also, Patrick Swayze takes his shirt off for a gladiatorial fight, which is not in the book, right? And because we have to have Watch, a... the, the gladiatorial fight is, but it's, but it's, it's Sir, Sir Henry, Henry. Against Twala, not you know, Quartermain against this random, you know, warrior. And he takes off his, and he's so tan. And I'm just very curious why there were no tan lines, but I know it would disrupt the myth. I, I will say that. The man, uh, the myth, the I, Swayze. I do think that there was an eye towards a female audience. Um. Okay. And it's maybe, a Hallmark show, yeah, movie. Yeah. So it's females, females, it's women and queer dudes. Yeah. That's who watches Hallmark. And, Fucking Patrick Swayze at 52. He was 52 when he made this movie. Was he? Yes. I looked it up. Oh, okay. He, so he was actually about the same age as the character of Alan Quarterman in the novel. fine as a 52-year-old man. I don't look that good in my 40s. <laughs> Not very many people do. Yeah. I'm just saying. So anyways, yes, a lot of homoeroticism. And I don't think it was accidental. And But in the book, you're right. Yes, probably not intentional, but definitely as reading it in 2020, you're like, 
Oh, oh. Mm-hmm. The beautiful Sir Henry. Yeah. So, And it, it made for some interesting reading um, in that way. <laughs> yes. Yes, one of the did. one of the things that getting to that so there was a 1918 silent film version and I don't I've never seen it I think it may be lost a lot of silent films were lost I think that may be the case the first readily available version is 1935 where they've turned Sir, the Sir Henry character into a woman so she can be Alan Quatermain's love interest and one thing that's kind of clear when I read the novel it's like well Alan Quatermain's her point of view character he's the hero. No, Sir Henry's the hero. Captain Good's the wacky sidekick. Alan Quatermain's the helpful sidekick. In the book. In the book. Yes. But Sir Henry's absolutely the hero. He does all the really heroic stuff. Well, Ignosi does a lot of heroic stuff. Sir Henry does heroic stuff. Alan Quatermain's just kind of along for the ride and to provide assistance when needed. Yeah, well, and he happens to have the map, and he's going to take notes. Right. And, well, and he's the one who actually takes diamonds in his pockets when they leave, because they're all like, oh, my God, we're all going to die in here. And then they're like, oh, wait, we can escape. And Alan's like, oh, as we escape, let me put some of this shit in my pockets yeah. so that it won't be completely, like, worthless, you know? And then everything goes down, and, like, thankfully, he happened to have diamonds in his pockets, and so that's what, like, saves it. Which he doesn't do in the movie. They take none of that treasure. Yeah. In the movie, it, but, well, you know, I think Elizabeth's the movie, already rich, so who cares? Yeah, and they also wanted to portray him, I think, as being more noble, whereas in the book, he had a bit of a greedy streak, and he was open about that. Yeah. He wasn't a bad guy. No. But he had, you know, he was well, greedy. and I mean, not to jump, like, we're going to jump. Jumping's happening. But, like, in the book, the themes were about family versus wealth, right? So Quartermain's there because he wants wealth for his family, and Sir Henry is there to find his brother, family. You know, it's, it's, mm-hmm. and Good is there because he and Sir Henry are best friends. They're family. <laughs> They're fam. So, okay, fine. But like, and Cormain's there for the wealth, but it's really for his family, right? And like, there's no magic stone that has to do with power. In the adaptation that we watched in 2004, the, the, the struggle is power versus wealth because you have Ignosi's like, hey man, we don't want the stuff that's in there. Can you please destroy this rock? Because whoever has the rock will supposedly have the power. Twala wants the rock for power. He even says that to Gagul. He's like, she's like, you're in charge of all these this land. You're in charge of all these, why do you want this? And he's like, I want the rock. The rock has the power. Like people believe, that's even why the freaking czar, the Russian czar is now here because he wants the rock because if the African people believe that whoever has the rock has the power and the czar has the power, then the African people will obviously do what the czar says. So it's all about power, except for Quartermain, who's really there for wealth so that he can fight to get his son back and the family you know, thing of, of uh, Elizabeth, who's there to try to find her father. Okay, and McNabb, also a brand new character, he is there because he wants Alan, but you know, is it wealth or power? He's not as interested in the wealth part. He wants the power part. He wants the power over Quartermain. Yeah. So I, wealth I is like a like kind of like a, a product. Means to of, an end. It's a means to and an end. And in fact, end. at it's one very... point, um, Gagool confronts him and... McNabb. McNabb. And she says, you want power. And he says, I want wealth. And she just says, wealth gives you power. Right. It's like, yeah... That's actually, Gagool was one of the interesting changes, I thought, in this, because she goes from this uh, literally demonic, immortal creature in the book to being a fairly pretty young woman who has massive magical powers, but is very sympathetic in the And helpful. And helpful. She likes, you know, the 
the, the professor, she kind of is trying to help him a little bit. She leads them to the thing, She but she doesn't lock them. It's, it's their greed that locks them in. Yeah. You know, or they're actually technically their quest for power, because it's not until they take the rock, the special magic rock, um, that, like, locks them in. Um, whereas in the book, it's definitely the ghoul who's like, oh, yeah, go on, go on, go on. He slams the door, right? You yeah. know? Um, so, yeah, the, her change is very, very interesting. And the fact that she actually had magic, right? In the Victorian novel, we have, like, there's not really any magic. She's just randomly picking people. Like, maybe well, there's some native stuff, but, like, we're not going to understand. We're Englishmen. We're scientists. We it's, it's pretty... I was going to say pretty strongly implied. It's not implied. It's flat-out said, without flat-out saying, if you get what I mean, that she is hundreds of years old. She has some sort of magic that lets her, lets her prolong her life. We can tell that much. Eh, kind of, I guess. I just... I felt like that was, like, part of the... them not knowing... I think they gave themselves, like, enough plausible deniability that they could say, well, maybe she really isn't. But I thought it was pretty clear that, no, she's ancient. But in the movie, it was like, there's no subtlety. She has magic. She freaking kills a guy by telling him he can't breathe anymore, and then he dies because he can't breathe. She, like, has magical ability to know what's going on in other parts of the continent. Because yeah. she's like, these people are traveling. These people are doing this. These people are doing this. Blah, 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 blah. Like, she knows crap. And... She's hecka magic, mm -hmm. and it's not even subtle. And and freaking Ignosi's kind of magical too, with his like, I will speak to the ancestors, and I it's there's a prophecy about Alan Quarterrain helping me, and like you know, so there's a lot of African magic happening that the white people are like in awe of, false you know victim to or whatever. But like, it's not for us. It's not for the white people. The magic is all. There, just in Africa. I mean, and so that's that's a whole thing too. Well, it gets into a uh, idea that you, a little bit of a tangent, but I think it's relevant. There's this tendency um, to view things that are not seen as white as being magical. You know, Edward Said talked about Orientalism, which is the European view of the Middle East and Asia as being these mystical, non-modern, very specifically non-modern places. But you see this uh, show up a lot. I mean, why is it that we attribute haunted houses to Native American burial grounds? Or, you know, I used to be an intern at Vandenberg Air Force Base, and allegedly some of the uh, rocket launch complexes were haunted because a Chumash shaman had cursed them. Why do we do that? Well, because we view these people as being magical and mystical. Um, I mean, there's even a term in uh, literary criticism of the magic Negro, where, of yeah. course, the black person has mystical knowledge, insight, or power. And you see this show up, and so that's definitely played heavily on in this film. And it's definitely a part of, like, we're civilized with our science, and they are not civilized. They rely on magic. And that is, that's us versus them. Yeah, absolutely. It's an othering of them because, you know, well, they they have magic and we have science. And it's one of these weird things because it's, <laughs> it's like, okay, so if you say they're other, they don't have our science and all of their magic is superstition nonsense, that's racist, obviously. But then you're like, oh, no, it's not superstitious nonsense. It's beautiful and magical. And if only we could be as in touch as the earth as they are, which is also, by the way, fucking racist nonsense. <laughs> but it's like, like, it's the gentler, like, weird version of racism. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, it's I, like how all, like, the Native Americans are always, like, they're so much more mystical than us. It's, what? No. 
Yeah, I, I'll say that in terms of mysticism, I work with a lot of Native American people, and um, I've been present at some, you know, various different. I don't get invited to a lot of the native only things. I'm not claiming that, but I have been present for different smaller rituals and uh, celebrations and so on. And it's no more mystical or exotic than a Baptist revival. In fact, I'd say a Baptist revival tends to be way more into the mysticism. I mean, come on, Pentecostals speak in tongues and pass around snakes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, who's the civilized now? Sorry. Yeah. <clears throat> anyway. <laughs> so the the character changes into the films I've always found kind of interesting though because you know in the novel Sir Henry is the hero and Alan Quatermain fawns over him. Well, in the films Alan Quatermain's always made the hero. Mm-hmm. But we have to have someone fawning over him. So enter well, a woman. Right, enter woman, but also you know I think they make it a woman so that because at the time that the films started being made in the 30s and 50s there was some strict code regarding how you could portray different types of people and you were not supposed to portray anybody who could be thought of you know could even be thought of as homosexual as part of the Hayes code and so i suspect that that was part of why they changed um the sir henry character who motivates the story by going to seek a family member into a woman was so that they could show alan quatermain is not in any way homosexual. Basically, the no homoed Alan Quatermain since at least 1935. That's right. Yes. And um, and it makes it okay to think of him as, as studly awesome because now there's a woman who is our right. audience identifier. You're now seeing Alan Quatermain through a woman's eyes, so it's okay f- to fawn over a male beauty or male studliness. And then that's just basically, even though by the time they made the 1985 movie, the Hayes Code was long since dead, it stuck. And every version, they've had the uh, Sir Henry character be a woman. Even in this 2004 version, where they have a character named Sir Henry, he does not function as Sir Henry in the novel. The character of Elizabeth Maitland functions as Sir Henry in the novel. With her long, beautiful blonde hair. With her long, beautiful blonde hair. And her heroics, because she does, like, try to escape, and she does this, and she does stuff, and, and it's her father is the reason that they're even mm-hmm. there in the first place. And it's I'll say... Her family connection. It was the same woman who played... Um, Elsa. Elsa in... Not in Frozen. <laughs> um, Another blonde hero. <laughs> who played Elsa in Indiana Jones in The Last Crusade, where she bested Indiana Jones and his father, who, by the way, Indiana Jones' father is James bond so i'm pretty sure that if you had given elizabeth maitland a battle axe she totally could have taken people out the way sir henry did in the novel oh, i'm sure yeah hmm. maybe so yeah also she has magical lipstick powers because her lipstick was on point the entire time i know i know it's a little quibble, but it bothers me nobody's teeth are ever dirty Nobody's ever stanky, nobody has their period, nobody takes a dump, and everybody's makeup is always perfect. It's funny, though, because, you know, it's talking about how this book has a lot of context that uh, the writer probably wasn't directly aware of. One of them is, you know, in the novel, Captain Good's false teeth become a plot point. And Alan Quatermain early on talks about admiring the quality of Captain Good's false teeth, because Alan Quatermain's false teeth, Alan Quatermain's in his 50s, um, his false teeth aren't nearly as good. And we never hear about Sir Henry's false teeth because I'm sure Sir Henry has perfect teeth that never, you know, get dirty or fall out and he never needs a toothbrush. However, um, it, it was one of those reminders that, again, something I didn't pick up on as a teenager, but I know now, up until really the middle of the 20th century, it was very common that once you became middle-aged, 
because it was just assumed you'd have severe tooth decay. You just got all your teeth removed and you used false teeth to eat from that point on. And it was just kind of one of these things where I always thought it was a little weird that, you know, Captain Good had false teeth and, you know, they, they wrote him with false teeth just so he could have this thing happen in the novel. No, they wrote him with false teeth because at that point in time, that was actually pretty normal. Yeah. Okay. So we talked about the change of the goal. We talked about Sir Henry. We talked about Alan. We talked about mysticism. We talked about Ignacy. Like, I'm trying to think if there's any other real main differences between... Uh, there's one thing that I think is a, a difference. So King Solomon's Mines fed a particular type of adventure story mm -hmm. that would go on to become the pulp magazine adventure stories and the cliffhanger serials and the radio shows, which would then in turn... It's also called Imperial Romance. Imperial Romance, right. But even when it was done outside of an imperial context, you could have you know, similar sorts of adventure stories told, like the 39 Steps takes place entirely in the UK, but it's a very similar type of adventure story in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Um... And that would go on to feed Indiana Jones. Well, then we get to this 2004 adaptation of King Solomon's Mines, where, first off, they've got these Russian spies who are fanatically devoted oh, to the Tsar. God. Okay. Totally unnecessary plot line that didn't contribute anything, but they've got to be there because, well, you've got to have some sort of vaguely menacing um, non-British, non-French... Um, non-African. Yeah, non-British, non-French, European power that's trying to get something because Indiana Jones had the Nazis. Right. So we're going to use the Russians because they're convenient. Oh, my God. Okay, so this happened while we were watching. One of the Russian guys gets shot early on and then, like, lives for a while, like, even though he was shot in the gut. And it doesn't, like, he's just there injured and stumbling around. And Matthew goes, like, that has to come up again. It has to be something. Otherwise, it's just, like, a false, you know, start of something. And I was like, yes, it's Chekhov's gun shot injury. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then we had to pause it so I could giggle maniacally. <clears throat> la la la, had to make the joke again. But yes. yeah, so you've got, you've got the Russians there, basically as stand-ins for Nazis. And the 1985 version of King Solomon's Mines took place during World War One, where they also had Germans in, be, even though... The Germans of World War One were very different than the Nazi regime, but that's getting into the weeds. So that is something that seems to have accumulated on because of Indiana Jones. There were not really death traps as such in the novel. There were perilous situations where they got trapped. But in the film, they have death traps. Like there's a point where they walk into the mines and if you step in the wrong place on the floor, a spear shoots up because... That's pretty similar to the dart trap at the beginning of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh yeah, even taking the stone out of the statue and then having the like bad stuff start to happen. I, was taken directly from Raiders of the Lost Ark. There at least I think they had the wherewithal to make a joke about it where, right. no, stand back! Yeah. <laughs> you don't know what's going to happen when you take that. Seriously. But um, I, I know that when we were doing the, um, watching the film, I was taking notes and at one point I just started, death trap. Because Indiana Jones. <laughs> Russians are standing for the Nazis. Because Indiana Jones. My notes are all, somebody's, you know, standing up to Alan Quartermain. Have they not seen Roadhouse? <laughs> Somebody else is trying to fight with Alan Quartermain. Have they not seen Roadhouse? Like, seriously. And at one point, I really feel like Patrick Swayze is looking at this guy going, wait a minute, dude. 
Have you not seen Roadhouse? Come on now. I'm 52, but I'm still going to kick your ass. I'm a Zen master bouncer. How dare you fight me? It was, uh, yeah, it it was interesting, though, to see how much extraneous stuff, like, I through the, while we're watching the movie, I started saying, I'm not going to call them the Russians. I'm going to call them the extraneous Russians. Yes. Because they were just totally useless, had no real influence on the outcome of anything, could right. have been cut out altogether. They were also just there for power. And I guess, like, again, like, they're there for the rock. The rock is there to make the idea of power be the thing. So, like... It's all added, like because the the magic yeah. rock certainly wasn't in the original either. So yeah, I, if you're gonna have a magic rock, apparently you're gonna have to have somebody who really wants the magic rock for nefarious purposes. Might as well make them Russian. Yeah, and so there's a lot of stuff in the film. Oh, they go into a tomb that's sh a stone tomb shaped like a cobra, because Indiana Jones. <laughs> there's a lot of stuff where it's like they could have, they could have adhered closer to the novel if they had um how do i put this if they'd taken out the russians they'd taken out the tomb they actually would have adhered relatively close to the novel but also this was a miniseries yeah. with two episodes so okay fine miniseries right. it was an extra long movie hallmark wanted two nights of this instead of one night so fine because this is one of the highest ranked ratings things in hallmark channel history what now yes so hallmark was like hey look patrick swayze an adventure movie. Well, let's make it two nights. Let's make it a miniseries. We need padding. Let's add some Russians. <laughs> yeah, there, there was a whole lot. And the Russians... 27 I, ambushes. <laughs> I, all I kept thinking every time the Russian colonel spoke was, it's Chekhov from Star Trek. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, yes. And then, like, they tried to give him a backstory. Oh, he is so awesome because a whole bunch of people had to march to blah, 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 blah. He's the only one who survived. He'll never stop. He's like the Terminator, you know. And, like, until he gets totally he, done in. He's totally done in. Fine. Um, by the magic Google. Hooray. Oh, so he gets his backstory, right? And then, like, she, Elizabeth, has a backstory. Oh, you know, my mother died and I was sad. My father told me that, like... When people die and go to heaven, like, they, God opens a window into heaven, and that's what stars are, and it felt very Lion King to me, actually, like, sitting there, but fine. There was a whole lot of, kind of, circle of life philosophizing yeah. going on in this film. Um, also, um, Ignacy, before he becomes Ignacy, he's, like, doing Tai Chi, and he's, like, the ancestors have spoken to me, and, like, Alan, you're special, and, like, you know... You're Alan's a wizard, like, Alan. <laughs> okay! He's, like... <laughs> You have a lot of faith. And he's like, oh, well, Alan, you don't have enough. And it's just like, because, you know, when we met him, he was all sad drinking in a bar, like at the beginning. But also, you know, I just, I mean, whatever. I... He was sad drinking in a bar being unmanly because men don't suffer depression when their wives die. Wait, hold on. <laughs> yes, but he was just being depressed in the manliest way by drinking heavily alone. I, I, I bet he had one solitary manly tear going down his cheek. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm but, sure. Then he'll only show off to Elizabeth. That's right. Um, and then, of course, we have the proposal and the in the thing, and then they're gonna make out on the side of the mountain after they almost die. And uh, okay, okay, but okay. I'm sorry. Can we talk about Sheba's breasts? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Okay. We can. <laughs> so this freaking novel, man. Sheba's breasts. They're gonna go through mountains. There's two of them. They look like breasts, apparently. They even have nipples. They have they, nipples? They say this over and over again Sheba's in the breast, the gentle slope of Sheba's breast and Sheba's nipple. And then, like, the way he describes it, 
is like, have you, have you actually seen a breast? I don't, I don't think you have. <laughs> Mr. Haggard, are you getting laid or are you sexually frustrated? I think you might be frustrated. Okay, then the movie was like, we'll see your Shiva's breasts and we're going to raise you. Because there's, between Shiva's breasts in the novel is Shiva's valley that they have to penetrate. Oh my god. And, and Shiva's secret cavern. And in Shiva's secret well, no, cavern. See, it's not Shiva's secret cavern. It's Solomon's treasure box. <laughs> but there's the cavern, the cave, first on the, you know. Which is how you get there. to Solomon's treasure yes. box. Yes, <laughs> okay. But then in the, in the movie, they're like, no, that saddle area between. there's First there's Shiva's smile and Shiva's breast. Oh, and Shiva's eye, which is the oasis. And Shiva's eye, yes. It's all very So Shiva has more of a body in the film. Yes, she has, she's a mouth and an eye and breasts. So, great. (laughs) Oh my god. Yeah, I remember I came across an essay after I finished reading the book. I I went and looked up a few different um, essays and one of them said this novel is uh about how you know a group of adventurers mostly white have to go into africa have to go through sheba's breast down to the valley to penetrate the uh, caverns and arrive at solomon's treasure box it's like you know i think you're putting way more thought into this than the author did but yeah it's kind of hard not to see that once it's pointed out Um, I, I did think that was a weirdly one of the improvements in the film version we saw is that they did give Shiva more body parts. So it wasn't just like we're calling him Shiva's breast because, hey, it's mountains and boobies. Boobies! You know, but more like, you know, this is all about the, you know, they talk about it's, the mines being a gift for Shiva rather than Solomon's treasure box being essentially Shiva's vagina. Right. Um, you know, I don't know. I just called them uh, Shiva tits the whole time we watched because that, I liked that. That is true. There, there were some things where I think they improved on the novel in the miniseries we watched. They were largely things that I think make the novel more palatable to a modern, or make the story more palatable to a modern viewer. Um, you know, the Africans, although there is still some racism of, of course, they're the magic savages. You know, we also see them having more of a character. Twala's actually given a backstory that's not just oh, I killed some guy and took over the throne because I'm a badass. It's, you know, he's actually been hurt by colonialism and he wants to be able to try to strike back against colonialism. He's a, Weirdly, he's more sympathetic. Um, Gagool is a much more interesting character, I think, in the film, whereas in the book, she's literally just this weird sorceress. But then early in the book, there's a point where they have an elephant hunt that goes awry and, of course, one of their African servants is killed in a very gruesome way. Sacrifices himself for the good of his white masters. Yeah. Whereas in the film, they move that even earlier. It's made into sort of a prologue. And rather than an African servant being killed by the elephant, it's this dickwad European guy who wants to go on a safari. And he wants to kill um elephant calves and female elephants which alan quatermain in the film is a conservationist whereas in the book he's not he's killing elephants right and left in the or in the the miniseries that actually becomes thing where the white hunter who's just greedy to be able to say he had the experience of killing an elephant kills a calf 
and then the calf's mother is injured. Well, the calf's mother comes back and kills him. And so it's basically a, this is what you get for being greedy and trying to do harm. Yeah, karma's going to come smash you. Right. So rather than it being the case that, um, you know, the servant is dying and sacrificing himself to save his white master, the white master gets what's coming to him for being a greedy bastard. Yeah, so there. Yeah, I mean, and then when Kiva does die in the miniseries, he is trying to get the stuff to help the people for sure. Um, it's it, it frustrated me because he was like, "It's on the path. I'll climb over there and get it." And no, he gets shot and dies. And then it's still on the path, and Elizabeth's like, ah, "I'll climb over and get it." And then um, somehow she doesn't get shot because McNabb's gonna shoot her. But then Quartermain finally, finally is able to actually hit. Oh my god, can we just take a second? Because these people all went to the Stormtroopers school of shooting because they can't shoot at all. And I love what you said when we were watching it. Oh, yeah. So how do you take the great white hunter trope of the 19th century and make it family friendly for 2004? Hallmark. Yeah, on Hallmark. You make him a conservationist and you make him really bad at shooting humans. How do we make hunters less scary? None of them can hit anything worth a damn. Like, basically. Yeah. Because, like, these guys, not only can they just not kill each other with their guns, but also, like, the African huts and straw and, like... Were ram- somehow bulletproof? Dude! Right? Like, this guy's, like, standing behind, like, this little tiny shed, and he's just like, oh, I'm fine. Whatever. It's all cool. Yeah, there literally is a scene where they're having a shootout and at a grass hut, and the uh, Russian officer just ducks behind the walls of the hut, Bullets hit clearly right in front of where he is, but somehow they can't make it through the grass. Yeah, it was special. Anyways, so yes, um, I, I think they both had elements of the white savior complex and the white savior stuff. I actually got a little bit more of that in. Well, I was gonna say in the movie, it seemed a little bit more obvious because um, yeah. Ignacy was like, "You are here to save us, and you will help us." Whereas in the book, you're kind of like. I feel like Mbappa would have gotten there even without these guys. Like, he was like, this will be a fun, like, I'll go with you. But, like, right. he it, could have gone by himself and retaken his people. In the book, he sees them as a means to an end. They're, the ancestors aren't leading him. The gods aren't leading him. It's purely a, these guys are going. They're well armed. I could use them. Yeah. And so he goes. And then once he gets there, yes, you know, the white guys do all sorts of impressive stuff. Including the eclipse. uh, Okay, so can I give a piece of writing advice? If you need your characters to show their supernatural power, don't have them predict an eclipse. Because you know what? Eclipses are natural phenomenon. People know about them. People have been predicting them for centuries. Not only that. But they make such a fucking huge deal about we can't carry any more water. We can't carry any more food. Oh, my God. We're running out of food. We're running out of water. We can't. We don't have our medical supplies. But you know what we're going to make sure we have with us? Our random ass almanac and our tobacco. I just, I just. They're just going to say nicotine's more. a hell of a drug. Just, <laughs> they needed packing help is what they needed. And at one point they couldn't leave because they didn't each have a servant. We have to have three servants. There's three of us. We can't possibly go on this journey without three servants. Fuck you. Okay. Huh. La la la. Which I like that the um, the Africans in the miniseries were not as much servants. They were porters. They were carrying things. They were helping. But they certainly weren't 
servants. Like, uh, even they, even Alan was like, we're going to need to keep watch. I'll keep watch first. Like, he wasn't like... They, they were servants, but servants as a matter of employment as opposed to yes. as a class of people. Exactly. Uh, you know, get what you were saying, though, about the white savior complex. That definitely was more prominent in the film version that we watched um, because Ignosi was clearly a heroic figure once they got to Kukwanaland in the book. And, you know, I think you're right. You get the impression that he would have found a way to make this work. It's just that these three white guys passing through happen to be convenient. Yeah, the only part that really makes it that the white guys really did a lot for that a is the uh is the eclipse really the magic noise things that are guns and the the eclipse because without that um he would have been fine and they didn't do either of those things in like they use their guns to to like scare people because they're guns but they didn't have any like they don't know what guns are like they there was none of that bullshit in, in the in the film very clearly everybody knew what a gun was right exactly and they also like didn't have any of that eclipse bullshit but they also didn't have the war and i will say i hated the war in the book i hate war um and it bores me and i just i found myself skimming i don't want to know about troop maneuvers and like hearing about all the dead bodies being piled up and this that and all the no sorry done over it um so i that was a change i really appreciated that the miniseries is like okay we're gonna come challenge you for like being the king and then we're just gonna have one combat and then it did not hurt that patrick swayze got half naked and like kicked the shit out of somebody so i'll although also for uh any eagle-eyed viewers you'll notice that if you watch this version patrick swayze does get his fight moves from captain kirk Yes, he does. He's a lot he, of quirks. He also a lot of somersaulting. Yeah. Lots of somersaults and, a, a, and lots of quirks. Quirks. Which means that we have, yet again, referenced Star Trek in this podcast. Well, there so. you go. But like, <laughs> at one point, he even puts his hands together and brings them down on somebody. He's like, oh, hey, he quirked the guy. He um, Yeah, it was funny because Patrick Swayze is known for his physical prowess. And, you know, he has done a lot of good fight choreography. They weren't doing any of that. They literally had him fighting like Captain Kirk on Star Trek. Um, one of the, uh, I did not mind the war sequence at first, by the way, every film version I'm aware of gets rid of the war sequence. Good. Um, but I didn't mind that. I actually thought it was kind of interesting until, so they have an initial battle and then Twala says, well, Hey, they're all up there on that mountain. They've got the high ground. We can't do anything. We're just going to siege them. And that makes perfect strategic sense. That's what you would do. Okay, good idea. And so then they decide that they're going to come running off the mountain down this one area where they've got this narrow corridor. And that'll draw all of Twala's troops in. And they'll be able to, you know, destroy his army by basically forcing them into this um, very narrow passage. Which, you know, the first time I read it as a teenager, I thought, whoa, that sounds like a pretty good strategy. Okay. And then as I started reading it now, it's like, okay, that sounds like a... Ex- Wait, hold on. But to all those people are still around that, are still all around the mountain. And that little canyon they're going into, that works both ways. So why doesn't Twala just keep up his siege and let them throw wave after wave of their own people? Because, you know what? Twala still had the strategic advantage. Why the hell did he decide to fall for that? Because he was... The savage. Because he had to be killed in order for the novel to get Um, its conclusion. This just, I I just discovered, though, that personally, um, war maneuvers and wartime and battle structures and strategies and blah, blah, if it's not Mike Duncan telling me about it or Dan Carlin, I just, I just don't want to hear it. 
And yes, now I will have to put both Mike Duncan and Dan Carlin into the show notes. And you guys can all figure out who they are because they are awesome. They are awesome. And you should be listening to them. Okay. So I think that this podcast is getting very long. I, I, I pretty much ready for my final thought. Sure. My sum up. Do you have anything that you wanted to say that we did not get to? No, I think that we're good to do a sum up. Okay. Here is my sum up. My sum up of was it worth your time? For the book, I would say this is one of those books you should read so you can write a really nice essay about it in high school or college. But for the movie, sensitive cowboy type seeks pampered, bored female with magical lipstick staying power for unremarkable afternoon adventure. Bring the popcorn. Low expectations a plus. I will say the novel is an effective adventure novel that is buried under a lot of racist and colonial baggage so your ability to make it through it's really going to depend on your ability to put up with that um the film i thought it was basically a serviceable but unremarkable adventure film that was like indiana jones but without the humor and patrick swayze for all that you can say for him and i actually fairly like him as an actor but he just doesn't have harrison ford's charisma that is true. Also, it's long. It's it, a miniseries. It took us two nights, and I just feel like this really doesn't need to be that long. You don't need to spend that many hours of yeah. your life there. The uh, the nineteen fifty movie was an hour and a half long, and my recollection is that it was relatively faithful to the book, except it took out the war sequence. So I will link to in our show notes the uh, preview for the nineteen fifty movie, and you will all understand why. After watching that, I was like, yeah, noping out of this. I hope. I hope you will. And I, this was on, was it Prime? Was it, we didn't have to pay for the it was Hallmark. On, it was on Prime. We did have to pay for it, but it wasn't very much. Oh, okay. Well, anyways, I would say, I mean, if you if you like Patrick Swayze, who doesn't? And you want to spend some hours um, in some beautiful scenery. It was filmed on location in South Africa. And it is beautiful. Then, sure, grab some popcorn and watch it. Uh and it might be I just it's worth is it worth your, it's worth watching sure but it is it's long so I don't, it's not worth the time it takes I suppose maybe is how I'm or is where I'm going to land on this I, I'd go with that I'd say if you've watched all the Indiana Jones movies and you want something like that yeah go ahead and give it a try it's not as much fun as the Indiana Jones movies it's amazingly less racist than Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom fair enough um, yeah so pour yourself a white Russian pop some popcorn and uh, enjoy One last thing we're going to do before we sign up for the day is say thank you to Matthew. Thank you very much for being here today. This was a lot of fun, actually. Yeah. It was fun to record with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was really fun to have you, you know, here for this recording. I'm always here. Well, okay. It was fun to have you here in this room actually being part of the recording and not just on the other side of the house watching the child or uh, doing whatever you do. When I'm not around. Whatever I do. Yes, whatever you do. Um, There's a euphemism. Well, actually, speaking of things that you do, um, how can our listeners get in touch with you if they want to get in touch with you? Do you... They can't. They can't. Well, there you go. He is an enigma. He is a mystery. He is my husband. So if you know me, then... You can always write to Kaylee and tell her to throw a shoe at me or something. That'll be effective. There you go. But you do have something that you are going to be doing. Uh, Yes, I'm working on a podcast myself because 
the pandemic is on and I'm a middle-aged white guy, so of course I have to start a podcast. I just admire the fact that you have waited several months into this pandemic to start your podcast, so I had to get, job. I had to get good and desperate. Yes. Um, but the podcast will be uh, called Ghostthropology, and uh, I have a lifelong fascination with ghost stories. Allegedly true ghost stories, not fictional ghost stories. And you mean we're not going to be reading and watching Casper, the friendly ghost, on your podcast? <laughs> no. So it'll basically be just a description. I'll read out a ghost story, and then I'll provide some discussion of the ghost story. Uh, basically, whatever it is that I find interesting about the story, which could be the history of the story, the nature of it, anything of that sort. Okay, this exciting podcast is going to be produced by somebody awesome, right? Um, I found some strange woman living in my house, and she decided <laughs> that she was going to do the editing and uh, script copy editing for me, so uh, well, I, I think you know her. Her name's Kalia. Yes, how convenient for you. Lovely, lovely. So um, once that gets up and going, we will link to it on the show notes. I'm sure I'll be promoting it. It's not quite ready for all of your eyes or ears quite yet, but once it is, we will let you know. Yeah, so, it'll be a little while yet. Thank you so much again, Matthew. This was awesome. I had a good time. So you're saying I know how to show a lady a good time. Pages and Popcorn Podcast was brought to you today by White Russians and um, caffeine and uh, the freedom to not watch things you don't want to watch. So And Kalia hating love. Ah, yes. Says her husband. <laughs> Thank you and good night.